before I jump in, I just want to share with you my thanks to the Lord for Paul and Bobby. As I've slid into Mike's spot and working with them and leading the class, I've just seen kind of behind the scenes what they're doing. Now, I'm even thinking about the announcements this morning. That's not something like Bobby just pops up here and off the top of his head does this. Like he's thinking earlier in the week what needs to be shared, putting together a handout so you guys can walk away with this info and it's not just like, well, I shared it, they should have gotten it, but think about what's most important, how to share that. So you guys don't see all that stuff behind the scenes, but I want to share with you my thankfulness for them and their help in leading the class. Also, one other note, like right on top of you guys. I think I probably have seen you. <laughs> um, so, how many of you guys know Chris and Kara Campbell? Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, so many of you guys do. So, they're actually going to be transitioning Sunday school classes and coming into here after little Marcy is born, um, which should be, I think, the beginning of August. So, uh, as you know, we usually provide meals for people when their baby's born. So how does that going to work? So um, I told them we would just take care of that um, for them. So that means that some of you guys know them. It will be easy to jump in when you get this email saying, hey, here's a couple you guys have never seen in class before. They're going to be in our class. Let's provide meals for them. Um, but then for those of you who don't know them, I would encourage you this could be an opportunity to get to know them. It's not always most convenient to go in and sit down in the first weeks after baby's been born and have a long conversation, <laughs> but even on the front porch, you know, if only Chris is able to come out and talk to you to receive the food, you can still have a five minute conversation with him and get to know him. So think of it as an opportunity to get to know them. So just give you a heads up. So when you see that email and you're wondering, oh, the Campbells aren't in our class, like what, was this an oversight? That's why they're going to be transitioning in. And I told them that'd be a, a nice way to love them as they come in um, to begin by serving them in that way. Make sense? Great. All right. So Last week, we started into First Thess, and I was hoping to get quickly through kind of the dense background info and then finish uh, just with kind of an overview of some of the encouraging themes from the book, and I got like halfway through, and that's all. <laughs> so it was like an abrupt landing <laughs> halfway through one of the missionary journeys. Um, so I'm just going to finish that up this morning, uh, but I'll start with a little bit of review, whether you were here or not. That way, it'll kind of keep you up to speed. So... Um, we talked a bit about why the historical background to a book is relevant to following Christ. Does anyone remember like the, the basic point there? How is that relevant? If, if we want to follow Christ more faithfully, that's why we're here. That's why we're looking to God's word. How is the historical background of a book relevant to that? Yeah, yeah, totally. The author assumed those things, right? It was kind of a, what's the best word? A circumstantial letter, right? It was written to people in a certain circumstance, and they, they knew those, that situation. And then that still kind of leaves open the question, well, what's the relevance of the author's intention to our benefit from the book, right? Those things for some of us might seem obvious, but for others that may not seem so obvious. Um, but if, if God inspired in his revelation from God, then we need to understand what he meant by it, right? You know, what he meant by it is what the human author meant by it. And so to try to get some kind of benefit from the Bible that's not connected to what God meant by that text is not only futile, but dangerous, right? Because whatever that is, is not something God actually revealed. So that's why we want to do that. Um, those two, we don't want to bifurcate those two and allow that kind of, that dichotomy to, to enter our mind where we think, well, Sometimes people study the Bible kind of studiously, academically, and sometimes we just study it for some kind of edification. Uh, it's not that all of our study has to be really academic, but we do need to work at what did God mean by this, right? 
and then apply that, not just look for something that bypasses what God might have meant for some edification. All right, so jumping in, we looked at verse 1, three orienting elements in the introduction. And first, our models, encouragers, and instructors. I know we went over this as just by way of review. So this is the authors, right? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. They were all the ones writing it. Um, and I called them that because, as we'll see throughout, they spent a lot of time, particularly in chapters 1 through 3, kind of sharing about their own lives, I think intentionally as a model for their readers to know something about what it looks like to live faithfully the Christian life. And then also they're seeking to encourage throughout chapters one through three. And then four through five, they really begin to turn to answering questions that the Thessalonians had. And so I give instruction there. And I gave you this little list of dates that kind of just helped to orient you to the historical context. And so um, some of you might still have that. Some of you guys, your, your glimpse at this last week may have been sufficient. But if you uh, didn't get it or don't have it still, just raise your hand. I think some of the guys have them, and they can hand those out. Raise your hand if you need one of those. Yeah, just keep those up until you receive it, and they'll walk around and give that to you. So the goal here is just to orient you to some of the relevant dates uh, to understand the historical context here. So we've started first by looking at the first missionary journey. And for that, I had a little map here for you guys. So there you can see kind of the whole context of the Mediterranean world. And we saw how on the first missionary journey, um, Paul and Barnabas and uh, John Mark head out. They come down here then head up here. And they basically spend time in the Galatian region of Asia Minor. Uh, planting these churches here, and then they return. So that's the first missionary journey primarily in that region, and that's where Timothy was most likely converted. Timothy was from uh, one of these cities, I think Lystra. Yeah, Lystra is where he was from, and so he was probably converted during that time, and between the first and second missionary journeys became a significant leader in the churches there. And then we move into the second missionary journey, in between there was the uh, Jerusalem Council. So you guys might remember that from Acts 15. Keep in mind the whole, you know, basically everything that Yahweh has been doing among, in the world, has been done through Israel up to this point, right? Like Israel's been at the center of that. And if you want to be a part of what God's doing, him recreating a people for himself on the earth, you've got to like proselytize to Israel. And so with the new covenant, that all changes. Like Paul says in uh, Ephesians 2, the dividing wall has been broken down. We're no longer excluded from the promises and the covenants, right? Gentiles are now brought in. I say we am, assuming we're all Gentiles here, are, are being brought in. Um, and so that's a massive shift that's really hard, even for Jews who have understood what God's doing and turned to Christ to, to swallow, because it's a big shift in what God's been doing. And so they're struggling with that. And to think that things that had been for so long marks of the people of God, like circumcision, like food laws, would just suddenly be done away with, that's hard for them to accept. And we said again and again in the New Testament, that was a big issue. Um, and so while uh, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, some Jews come up, some believing Jews come up from... Um, Actually, I should back off that. Exactly who they were is hard to tell whether they're believing Jews or not. But they come up from Judea down here in Jerusalem up there, and they basically start saying that everyone who's following Jesus, Jew or Gentile, must be circumcised. And Paul and Barnabas begin to say, ah, that doesn't seem to accord with what we understand to be happening in the new covenant. That doesn't seem to be required. Um, and they kind of 
debate with them back and forth, not just a, an academic debate, but a debate over the, the health of the church and what, what the gospel is. And they can't reach a resolution. So they say, well, let's go down to Jerusalem. That's kind of like the, the mothership here. And uh, let's get together the apostles there and all the elders there. And let's talk this through. So they do. Luke records for us in Acts 15 how that went. And they conclude, no, the law, the Mosaic law is no longer binding. Things like food laws don't need to be observed. People are welcome to do that, but they can't be required of anyone. Circumcision is no longer required. So they conclude that. They write this letter. And they send it back. So they send it with Paul and Barnabas. But Paul and Barnabas were obviously on one side of the debate, right? So it's a little suspicious for them to be the ones delivering this letter <laughs> with the decision. So they send two other people who also had been a part of that council, uh, one of whom is, Luke calls him Silas. But we realize he's actually the same guy that's listed at the beginning here of this letter as Silvanus. So Silvanus or Silvanus, that's the Greek form of the name. So that's where this guy who's in the beginning of the letter pops up. He was a leader, possibly an elder at the church in Jerusalem. So a very significant figure in the early church. He traveled back to Antioch. This is between the first and second missionary journeys after the Jerusalem council. They spend a little while in Antioch after they deliver this decision. Paul, Barnabas, Silas, they're spending some time there ministering. And then they eventually decide, hey, we need to get back to those churches we initially planted. And we need to edify them. We need to encourage them. Um, that's just as a side note, an important thing to remember. Sometimes it's easy to think about missions in terms of like take the gospel, get some people to, to raise their hands and accept Christ and then move on because people are now going to heaven. And by all means, like that, that's a wonderful thing, right? But the New Testament also puts a priority on raising them up, right? Seeing them grow to maturity, elders placed over those churches and those churches beginning to replicate because they're growing in maturity. And we see that just exemplified here in Paul's early ministry. He could easily have said, why waste time in cities where there's already churches? Let me go somewhere else. And it's not as though Paul was lacking that kind of a heart, right? Where churches were established thoroughly, it able to replicate, he was saying, I want to go beyond that, right? I don't want to stay there. I want to go even further beyond that. But where these churches still need some encouragement to make sure they're going to persevere and be mature, he, he wants to be there making sure that's happening. So they then head out on that first missionary journey, and that's what this map is showing you in white here. Um, they, they go by land first up to these cities in Galatia which is the same place they had been planting churches on the first missionary journey, the same place they had already written the letter to the Galatians. I think that was probably written before the Jerusalem Council. Uh, I don't think there would have been so much confusion after the Jerusalem Council. That seemed to have solved those debates. Um, and then so they're coming back through here. That's when they pick up Timothy. So heading out here, you've got, uh, actually Barnabas didn't continue with them. Remember Bar Barnabas and John Mark are on this blue line. They, Paul and Barnabas divided over whether or not to take John Mark. So they go their own way. So heading out from here, you have Paul and Silas. And then they pick up Timothy from uh, Lystra, and they continue on through to Troas, get on a ship, go up here into Macedonia, and they plant a church in Philippi. Now we talked about how that's the, you might not remember exactly what happened from Acts, but you'll remember the story about the earthquake while they're in prison. Um, and they get out and the jailers converted. That's where that happens. Um, but they were beaten terribly there. Uh, they were beaten with rods, it says, thrown into prison. And then from there, they basically are sent out of the city after this earthquake. And they continue on from there to Thessalonica. Um, and I pointed out to you from the beginning of chapter two, how that explains when Paul says, basically, my, our integrity in proclaiming the gospel to you was in part evidenced by the fact that we came to you battered and bruised on account of the message we were proclaiming. 
Like we aren't profiting from this message in a way that you can accuse us of having some sort of um, personal motivation, some way we're benefiting from this. This is costing us a lot. Um, and you saw that because we, we got up and came, came right back onto Thessalonica and kept doing the same thing that got us beat up previously. So uh, that catches us up to Thessalonica. And then we finished off last time by basically reading the account in Acts, Acts 17, 1 through 15, about the time they spent there. They spent three Sabbaths in the synagogue preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, people attending synagogue are presumably anticipating a Messiah from the Old Testament. And so they're basically saying, hey, someone showed up just recently uh, in Judea named Jesus from Nazareth, and he was that Messiah. And so that, this guy we've been looking forward to, he's arrived, and not only has he arrived, but he's actually effected some bit of transition. You know, like Jeremiah said that there would be a new covenant, and God would do something new, Isaiah says, and that's happening. And so there's some shifts. We've got to explain those things to you, and you need to start following him. If you're going to kind of keep up with what God's doing, you need to, you need to uh, trust him. So they're proclaiming that in the synagogue, uh, Acts tells us. Many are converted, but not all the Jews are converted. And those who aren't converted, they're really concerned. And so they basically go into the city and find um, some thugs for hire and uh, begin to persecute the church. They go specifically to Jason's house, who was housing them, showing hospitality to them, and they uh, threaten him. And um, they eventually have to escape. So they escape in the night to Berea, heading from Thessalonica to Berea. We aren't sure exactly how long they remained in Thessalonica. The fact that it says they were there for three Sabbaths, it's going to stretch like you're, you're thinking about dates, means they had to be there for a little bit over two weeks because you can cover three Sabbaths in just a little bit over two weeks, right? Um, but it could have been more than that. And in fact, it could have been more than that. Just because he says they spent three Sabbaths like in passing doesn't mean they, they actually left right after that. Um, but at the very most, they spent a couple months. So they weren't there for long. That's, that's the main piece I want you to see. They go on to Berea. They share the gospel. Many are converted. Remember that statement in Acts 17 about the Bereans being more noble because they gave careful attention to the scriptures? So they were eager to go to the Old Testament and say, wow, what you're telling us is true, and this Jesus must be the Messiah. And so many are converted. But guess who shows up in Berea? the Jews who weren't happy about conversions from Thessalonica. So they travel from Thessalonica, hearing that Paul's there now, and they basically institute the same persecution there against Paul and against the other Jews who have converted to Christianity. And so um, it was apparently an urgent situation. Paul is ushered out and take, put on, taken to the shore and put on a ship and sent down to Athens. And then Silas and Timothy are told to catch up with him later. Um, so that's kind of what happens immediately after that. And I might just add as a little bit of a side note, and I'll show you how this becomes relevant to understanding 1 Timothy or 1 Thessalonians. We often think about persecution against the early church as being something that primarily came from like the Roman imperial authorities. Is that fair? The way we often think about it. And yet, uh, we often don't think about the persecution from the unbelieving Jews in the early church. And yet, that's really where it began. Um, if you look at 1 Thessalonians 2, if you guys have your Bible open, if you don't, I'll read it to you. But 1 Thessalonians 2, at the very end, verses 14, 15, and 16, Paul writes, For you became imitators, brothers, of the churches of God that are in Judea in Christ Jesus, because, this is the sense in which you became imitators, you suffered the same things. 
and you at the hands of your fellow countrymen, just as they did at the hands of the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us and are not pleasing to God nor before all humanity. So you can see there was a just a concern about the prevalence of this persecution from the Jews. And early on, actually in these earliest years, the Jews had a sort of religious exemption, we might call it in today's language, from Roman expectations for uh, people in the Roman world to participate in Roman religion or emperor worship. Basically, they said, if we're going to keep things people happy, we'll give the Jews an exemption. They can worship their own God and not have to offer incense to the emperor and these types of things. And so early on, Christianity is just a sect of Judaism. And so they're, they're kind of fallen under that exemption. But pretty quickly, you can imagine these Jews that, who aren't converting are saying, no, no, don't give them the exemption. They aren't part of us. Let's create a hard divide. They're not part of us. They're not another sect of Judaism. That's a, some different religion. And so suddenly now they fall outside of that kind of protective umbrella. And that, in subsequent generations, is when kind of imperial persecution arose. But early on, it was more of a something coming from the other Jews. Um, now, so you can see that they go down to Athens, Paul and... Uh, Paul goes to Athens, Timothy and Silas catch up with him there. And while they're there in Athens, they become quite concerned about the Thessalonians. And for good reason. Think about the situation they, they left them in. These believers in Thessalonica hadn't been believers for long. Right? I mean, when they left, they might have been two, two weeks, a little over two weeks, or maybe several months. But that's still not very long to leave brand new believers in. Furthermore, they were left in a situation of strong persecution, right? So imagine that you throw brand new believers who have been converted for weeks to months and only had your, um, your, your discipleship for weeks to months, and they're in the midst of strong persecution. You'd be concerned about their perseverance. Um, and so they decide, we're going to send Timothy. So Paul and Silas send Timothy back to Thessalonica to check up on them. Um, and this is referred to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. So if you'll look there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. You'll see in verses 1, 1 through 9. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? So, obviously, that happened before they write the letter, because they're reporting this in the letter. So, just to recount that, they plant the church, they move on to Athens, they're concerned there about how the church is doing, they send Timothy back, Timothy goes, checks on them, they're doing well. They have questions, but they're doing well. Timothy comes back, reports this, and that's what Paul's recounting here. 
And it was after that that they then write this letter back to them. So basically, Paul's heard an update from them. Now he wants to communicate back to them. And so he's going to write this letter. So um, the letter would likely have been written no more than one and a half years after Paul planted the church. So it kind of gives you an idea about what we're talking about here. About one and a half years, max amount of time between when the church was planted and when he writes this letter back to them. So this is a letter to an, a young church, a new church. So just quick review here. On which missionary journey is the church in Thessalonica planted? Second, good. Um, on which missionary journey was the letter of First Thessalonians written? Second, right, on the very same missionary journey, not, not much longer later. And then what had recently happened to them in Philippi just before they went to Thessalonica? They've been severely persecuted, right? Good. So now moving on here to uh, the next point. So second one, uh, our forerunners as beneficiaries. Here I'm just referring to the next portion of the verse. Verse 1-1, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I label this point as I do because these Thessalonian believers benefited from this rich letter long before we did, right? Um, and now we're able to benefit from it because it's been preserved and put into the canon. Uh, but in that sense, the recipients were our forerunners as beneficiaries from this letter. And notice that it says not only, uh, sorry, the text isn't up there, text is in front of you, um, to the church of the Thessalonians, but then in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's interesting because Paul often speaks about believers being in Christ, doesn't he? Meaning they're in union with him. They participate in what he did. They're, they're sort of identified with him as their representative such that the things that he does like, are accounted to their account. So his death is accounted to them. His, his bearing of God's wrath is accounted to them. They're, they're basically participants with him in that. But Paul doesn't often speak of being in union with God the Father, does he? That's somewhat a bit different, and that's what stands out to us here. Um, but that's not strange in the New Testament. Think of John 15, right? John 15 talks about abiding in the Son and the Father. So this is clearly a, a way of thinking that was prevalent in the early church, just not the way Paul often speaks. But basically here, what he's aiming to do by this phrase, the church that is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, is identify who he's referring to. You see, for us, the word church is a very focused word. When you hear church, you immediately think of people who are an assembly of Christians, right? People following Christ. But the Greek word ekklesia was just a generic word that meant assembly. Even before Paul and Barnabas showed up to plant a church, there would have been many ecclesiae already in, in, uh, in Thessalonica. Why? Because it means an assembly. Any sort of club or something like that that people have in a city would have been an assembly, an ecclesia. So he needs to clarify. It's not just the assembly in Thessalonica. There were many of those. He means that one which is the Christian assembly, those ones following Christ. And so this seems to be his term for identifying that. How did they identify themselves as uniquely Christians, as those who are in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, what was the makeup of this church that he's writing to? You know, was it Jews? Was it Gentiles? Well, from Acts 17, we pretty much hear only about Jews, right? Three Sabbaths we hear about, going in, reasoning with them, and many of the Jews converting. But when we read the letter, it seems like there might be many others who are there. For example, 
verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 1. So 1 Thess 1, 9. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it, but it makes it sound like the Thessalonian believers were converted from paganism, which wouldn't be true of the those who converted from Judaism. So it seems that at least in the weeks and months following Paul's time there, as it's reported in Acts, that many pagan believers, many pagans, had been converted to become believers. Um, there was a subsequently an increase in conversions from paganism. Also, um, there are probably the fewest references to the Old Testament in the letters to the Thessalonians of all of Paul's letters. Um, and I think that might simply be because there were so many unbelievers there who didn't know the Old Testament well that Paul wasn't spending quite so much time citing the Old Testament, quoting from the Old Testament. So that suggests that there might be a much larger percentage of um, people who weren't previously Jews, who were previously Gentiles from a pagan background. And this fits really well, actually, with the pattern that we see throughout Acts and Paul's ministry. Um, a pattern of first going to the Jews, proclaiming to them, initially getting some measure of reception among some of the Jews in the synagogues, but then reaching a point where they basically hit like a wall. And the, the Jews say, we no longer want anything with this. They begin to persecute them. And then they turn to the Gentiles. And then they usually see a much larger reception among the Gentiles. So it's almost always like in a city, initial, first, kind of small crop of believers from Jews, and then a much larger bunch of people turning from Gentiles subsequently. And so that's probably what happened. That would fit the pattern here, right? What we see in Acts about those first weeks, we only see Jews, but then in a letter written possibly a year and a half later, we find out that it seems that the majority are Gentiles. Does that make sense? Why the makeup probably was primarily people converting from a pagan background, not a Jewish background, even though all Acts reports to us is uh, the, the Jewish conversions. And then moving on here to the last part of the letter, the blessing here, grace to you in peace. So Paul finishes this first verse saying, grace to you in peace. This is what I called our blessing from God in Christ. The full idea here seems to be something like, um, you know, it's a God word request said to them, but obviously kind of directed to God, something like, may grace and peace be to you from God. That seems to be the idea. And by grace, Paul is essentially expressing his wish that God will continue to shower his undeserved kindness on the Thessalonians. Um, yeah, I have nothing else to add to that. And then with by peace, he basically uh, has, in, has in mind the kind of the Jewish idea of shalom, kind of a general state of well-being. And it was probably a pretty generic concept, like what he had in view. It's probably very much like you might begin an email, end an email, we used to say begin a letter, right? But now it's emails. We don't really send too many letters. Um, emails by saying something like, I hope you're well. I hope you and your family are well. Does that make sense? Do you guys do something like that? A text message, something like that? Um, that's probably primarily what was in mind here. When you say that, what do you have in view? Do you have in view their spiritual well-being, their physical well-being, their safety? Well, all those things, right? Pretty much anything that would fit under that rubric, you're, you're wishing that for them. And so that's primarily what he has in view here. But... Considering the Old Testament background with which Paul often writes, <clears throat> so here's kind of a, a balance, right? On the one hand, Paul may not regularly, explicitly cite the Old Testament in these letters, but he's not willing to so contextualize the gospel to non-Jews that he separates it from having any sort of rooting in the Old Testament. He's not willing to do that, right? The, the message for Gentiles is almost always, it, it always will be, participating in a plan 
that began primarily focused on Jews. That's what it will always be. Um, and so we can't separate it from that as though God's suddenly doing something entirely different than what he was doing previously. Yes, there's some disconnects, but there's still a lot of, a lot of connection. And so when Paul's writing to them about this peace, he probably has in view more than just kind of a, an isolated, hope you're doing well, like any kind of unbeliever might be able to say, but more so this larger vision of God restoring all of creation. Why is there sickness and death in the world? Because of sin. What is God doing about that? Well, he sent Christ to deal with sin. He's reconciling, as Paul says in Colossians, all things to himself, right? That's what God is doing in Christ. And that means all things, not just even like individuals, but he's going to create a new creation. He's going to remake the world so that all of these problems that are contrary to peace, contrary to well-being, are done away with, right? And so he's pr probably also saying, like, we're looking forward to that together. That's what we're looking forward to, this holistic shalom, well-being, um, and even this recognition that in Christ, this is a bit of a difficult concept here, but at least you should have a category in your mind, um, in Christ, we are already beginning to participate in that reality of a new creation. That's not something we, we fully realize, because all around us, we recognize we still live in a fallen world, don't we? And yet there's a sense in which we, at the inner man level, at the heart level, we're being remade, aren't we? We are new creations. We're seeing that work happening within and that transformation happening within. So it's almost like there's this overlap of the ages, that you've got the old fallen world still continuing right along. Even our physical bodies are still kind of a part of that trajectory, aren't they? They're still decaying. And yet our inner man, our, our hearts, our souls, they're already beginning kind of that new creation following the resurrection of Christ. They're already being transformed from one measure of glory to another measure of glory. And so Paul is probably even looking at that in view as well, that, you know, peace to you, grace and peace in the sense that the Lord's already redoing, doing that renewal work within you. So um, that's the historical background from verse 1. And then in terms of the things we can learn from the letter, we're going to learn about perseverance. This was a church that was um, heavily persecuted. Uh, so we're going to learn about not just persevering in the faith, but specifically even, as we'll see from the Thessalonians, flourishing in the midst of persecution. And we'll see that evidence both in the lives of Paul and the Thessalonians. When you think about the prospect, I don't say that prophetically, the, the possibility um, of rising persecution, even in our own country, against Christians, do you anticipate a time of flourishing for yourselves and for our church? But Paul sort of paints a picture of that possibility, right? We shouldn't be so quick to assume that it won't be a time of flourishing, that it is possible. We'll learn about that from this letter. Uh, zeal. We see in the lives of Paul and Thessalonians a zeal for the work, a zeal for the mission of Christ, even when it's costly. Even when it's costly, they are zealous for it. And so we can ask ourselves, do we find that we're zealous about the mission of Christ? Do your thoughts throughout your days and weeks return to that? Is that often in your prayers? As you think about your life, is everything situated in relation to the mission of Christ? And so I hope that this letter will help us to grow in that way. Related a bit to zeal, but maybe a bit more generally, enthusiasm. We see in the lives of Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, just an enthusiasm, an excitement about the mission. 
They are just downright enthusiastic about what God is doing in the lives of the Thessalonians. And we see this in the letter. And it, even to me, it's been just an encouragement that sometimes uh, we can just become so, can become so commonplace, right? Um, even just reading someone's uh, baptismal testimony on Friday and just thinking like, yeah, one more thing on the list to do, right? Read a baptismal testimony, move on. Um, but wow, think about the way the Lord transformed this person's life late in life. Like that is incredible what he's doing. And it's so easy just to move on, but uh, just to learn from Paul, like just that enthusiasm, to be reminded that this is incredible. Let's not lose sight of that. Love. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy express such love for the believers. And then even at the latter end of the letter, there's multiple paragraphs where they're specifically encouraging them, excel still more in love for one another within the body. So we're going to be specifically encouraged to grow in love for one another. Um, Thanksgiving. We'll jump right into this next week, but there's a sense in which I don't know of any letter, maybe Second Thessalonians, that's more filled with thanksgiving for what God's doing. And so, uh, yeah, we'll be encouraged to just to be more intentionally thankful to the Lord for what he's doing in the lives of other believers and in our own lives. And then finally, instruction. Um, at the end of the letter, Paul's going to teach on a variety of things. He's going to encourage us not to be complacent with the progress we've made, but to excel still more. He says that multiple times. Um, encourage us in terms of pursuing sexual purity, about loving one another in the church, about how to think about believers who have already died and how we can have hope for them even after their deaths, um, how to live in light of the coming of Christ, and many other things. So uh, one of the things that stands out to me about this letter, as I mentioned already, is just the zeal that it encourages. So I hope as we keep moving on through this, we'll just grow increasingly Concern for that. And I keep saying the mission of Christ because, yes, the Lord's doing things in our own individual lives. He's meeting our needs. He's helping us with our problems. He's helping us overcome our own sin struggles. And yet, what he's doing is also a bit beyond that, isn't it? And he wants us to participate in that. We're not being sanctified only for our own holiness, though that's important, but also so that he can make us more fit instruments in his redemptive work, right? Um, to be turned outward and be used by him. And we need to be growing in zeal for that because it's, it is costly. It requires time. It requires money. It requires effort. It takes, takes away sleep, takes away TV time, all those types of things to spend time with people and pour into them. Um, but hopefully we'll learn that from Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy. We are more than out of time, but any questions or comments? All right, let me pray for us. Lord, we do love you, and we just thank you for Christ. He is at the center of all of this, uh, even if we don't mention him uh, throughout all of this, we know that he is the one who's done the foundational work to make all of this possible. And so we thank you for him. We long for his return to make all things new, to complete his redemptive work. We thank you for including us in that. And we thank you for the way that you are extending that work outward. Even as I think about the mission of Christ in this context of Koinonia, I think about uh, the lorries and we pray for them, Lord, as they do get situated there in uh, where they're serving and um, begin getting settled. We pray that they'd be able to find suitable housing and that they would just really be able to put down roots there and thrive there in their ministry uh, to those people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.